This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media businesses matter to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Zintner. This episode features our first interview in a series exploring the business of public media and how it is weathering and responding to the challenges of digital distribution. Our guest today is Lynette Clementson, the Charles R. Eisendrath Director of Wallace House, home of the Knight Wallace Fellowships for Journalists and the Livingston Awards for Young Journalists at the University of Michigan. Lynette spent several years as a magazine and newspaper reporter before moving into media strategy and leadership and was Senior Director of Strategy and Content Initiatives at National Public Radio, where she guided projects across broadcast, digital, and events before coming to the University of Michigan. Thank you for joining us, Lynette. Thanks for having me. Based on your experience at at NPR, really at a time when many of the opportunities of new digital technologies were first coming to the market, whether it was on a commercial end or for public media, how do you feel those challenges were different for NPR than for other media outlets? In some ways, I think the disruption of the past several years has been great for public media and has offered opportunities for businesses built around audio that didn't exist in other parts of the industry. I started in print and then moved into audio and radio, and NPR benefited greatly (laughs) from the disruption in print. First, from a, a workforce standpoint, many of the Reporters who lost jobs when local and regional newspapers started to downsize were still reporters. They're still Mm -hmm. journalists and wanted to stay in journalism, moved into public media. Certainly there weren't enough jobs to replace the Mm -hmm. thousands of jobs lost in the print industry, but public media benefited greatly. Um, And there's a long list of names Mm -hmm. who people are now familiar with listening to their radio, who who came from that first wave of print disruption. And then as technology changed, many of the user habit changes and certainly the move toward mobile and people wanting a la carte content on their phones really was good for audio um, because you had these large broadcast audiences that were solid, very faithful, and just because of aging, were on the way to decline. And a whole new generation of potential listeners who had this thing in their hand all the time and were suddenly wanting to listen to first to Pandora or Spotify, then podcast. Uh, podcasts started to become the thing again after they declined. Um, And so I think public media has been able to step into that. Certainly there have been challenges, technical technical and in terms of reach and audiences, and I don't think they figured out all the answers yet. But I felt like the years that I was at NPR from 2012 through the end of 2016 when I came here to the University of Michigan, it was a great time because it was a time when NPR was recognizing Mm -hmm this opportunity and this chance to develop new platforms to go back to that original mission to inform and engage Mm -hmm. the public and that sort of very um, entrepreneurial spirit 
that public media grew from, and it's great you're having these conversations um, on the 50th anniversary of the act that created public media, because I think in most public media newsrooms you go into now, there's a lot of conversation about what was that original mission, what were we supposed to be doing, and how can technology enable us to fulfill that mission going forward. So podcasts clearly are something that NPR has has been aggressively moving forward with, and I think one could argue even the market leader relative to the commercial space. How do you see podcasts in relationship to radio? So I think they're very different listening experiences, and that's something that um, the people who had become great at the broadcast clock Mm. had to unlearn some things. Um, Uh, Do you mind defining what the broadcast clock is for our audience? Sure. So for typical radio listeners, you get in your car, you walk into your house, and you turn on a radio, and you are subject to the programming clock. And a programming clock, even in a non-commercial space, has built-in breaks um, and a certain flow to the segment. So if you were to listen to morning drive or afternoon drive radio, there's a, a fairly predictable flow of the show from the hard news at the top to maybe a longer explanation of the main news story to something about business, to something about international news. There's a break, then you have something funny, there's another break, and then you talk about culture or a new movie coming out this weekend, Mm -hmm. and there's a flow. And people are trained to program to that flow. And NPR certainly is uh, expert at it. That's why Morning Edition and All Things Considered have their ratings have increased, even when television ratings have have gone down for news programs. But it's a different kind of listening experience. And what podcasts have done is the market has created a demand for a more intimate listening experience where the listener feels like I mean, it's, it's exactly the opposite, right? They don't want a broad cast. <laughs> they, they want to listen to something that feels tailored to their interests. And so podcasts tend to be more topical. So 20 to 40 minutes to an hour on a deep dive that you like, whether that is science, whether that's finance and money. Planet Money was one of the first... Mm-hmm. NPR podcasts that really developed this devoted audience that wanted to come hear these these regular couple of people talk in a very relatable way about finance issues. And in a podcast, you could uh, have enough time for that subject matter to breathe, right? If we were talking about this for broadcast, we would have had to stop at three and a half minutes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's interesting to think about the way in which the podcast, it's its both about a different experience of audio than we've been familiar with, because you know, radio is exactly that, very scheduled, but also this shift in content that is about targeting that more specific audience, because you know, in deciding what to send out, you can send out so many different things instead of trying to design, design something that's going to mostly please the most listeners. That's right. Yeah, that's a fascinating that's right. shift. How did NPR identify you know, those, which audiences to target? So in, in, you noted public, uh, um, Planet Money being one of the first. And how were those audiences distinct from NPR 
audiences of the past are on broadcast. So the easiest way right now to map it, and and my um, data is going to be a year out of date, but I, I was at NPR recently, and so I know it's still within the range. The broadcast audience, the average age of that listenership is in the in the low 50s, around 50 years old. The, so around the, where it is for broadcast, broadcast, network, TV, broadcast yeah. TV. And the podcast audience is late 20s, wow. early 30s. Wow. So so there's a real demographic difference in the listenership. Mm-hmm. And for pure business reasons, for NPR to exist in the future, <laughs> you have to cultivate that younger mm-hmm. audience. And you have to cultivate them. You know, there, there's a lot of, of data that shows that there's a time when people start listening to public media, usually in their late twenties, right? They're yeah. they're out of college. <laughs> <Sounds right to laughs> me. You know, they're they're starting to work. They want to, you know, they're going to dinner parties where they want to feel informed. They need to know about things, and that's a time when people usually they're sort of in the business we call it sort of the age of adoption, mm. and you want to hook people at the age of adoption and then grow with them. And I think NPR has been smart to recognize that to get the current group of listeners who are ready for that age of adoption right now, you can't necessarily hook them on the radio. Some, mm-hmm. some you can, but they had to move into podcasts to start to develop this listenership. And so some of it was, was driven by what we knew NPR listeners already tended to like. So science was... Um, sort of a no-brainer because everything shows that people listen to NPR for smart um, conversational explorations of of science topics. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the podcast Invisibilia came from. I helped to launch the Hidden Brain podcast. And and that one was a sort of very specific one. And you should talk to Shankar Vedantam sometime Mm -hmm. because he's really wonderful. But Hidden Brain started as a small, regular segment on Morning mm-hmm. Edition. And Responsible for many driveway moments. I yes, <laughs> yes. And based on the response to people wanting to hear more mm-hmm. of that, yeah. it seemed like a natural to try to say, well, what if we expanded Hidden Brain mm-hmm. um, so that people could get a more intimate conversation with Shankar, where on Morning Edition, the way the segments go is it's mediated with the host mm-hmm. of the show. And on the podcast, then Shankar becomes his own host, the host of his own show mm-hmm. um, for a small enough period of time that people can walk their dog or wash the dishes. or yeah. So it's, it's longer than Morning Edition, but it's not, it doesn't take a huge chunk out of your busy life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many of the decisions were made in that way. I also helped start the Code Switch podcast, and the Code Switch team at um, at NPR was started as a way to do deeper dives on race, ethnicity, and culture. It started out as a blog. It right? did, and and that is also part of this disruption. Ah, yes. The 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 arc of the disruption and what public media has had to respond to, both in platform changes. Mm-hmm. So started at a time when NPR knew that they needed to develop. There were some digital audiences that they were not reaching on the radio. Mm-hmm. And and I think public media has this problem across the board where the audience, ju- the broadcast audience just simply is not as diverse mm-hmm. as they want or need it to be or that it should be. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's um, 
Questlove from The Roots started a podcast recently that I really love called, um, it, it plays on the term A Love Supreme, mm-hmm. um, you know, the John Coltrane mm-hmm. song. And he, in describing it, he sort of described it as a pod, an NPR-like podcast for black nerds. And my answer to that was, there's already an NPR for black nerds. It's called NPR. <laughs> you know? right. and it, but it's sort of been this trick for why the broadcast audience has not mm. grown in a way that represents the changing demographics of the country. But in blogs and in podcasts, the audience is much diverse. And so in many ways, it follows the demogra- demographic trend more broadly. Mm-hmm. The younger the audience, the naturally more diverse it is. And so you have to be on the platforms where you can reach those people. And so Code Switch started as a blog. But the other thing podcasts allow, and there's a fine line to walk, is that you can have a little bit more voice um, in a podcast than you can Mm -hmm. in a straighter journalistic form. Mm -hmm. And especially on issues of race... We're hearing a lot from the Code Switch audience that they wanted to be more in conversation with those reporters, mm-hmm. talking about some things that happen in the podcast form allows for that. And it allows for more in-depth discussion. Too. A more in-depth yeah. discussion, a little edgier discussion mm-hmm. that you, by n- nature, would not have... Right. A discussion that edgy or that long in a broadcast segment. And you have listeners self-selecting in. Yes. And so you sort of, I think, I'm sure as you're imagining your audience, as we do here, <laughs> and if you're listening to Media Business Matters, it, it must be because you're interested in this topic. And so we can sort of assume a certain sensibility or, you know, we don't have to explain perhaps why something you is don't important. Ha- yes. Right? You don't have to, you don't have to go one-on-one or one, one-on-one course on every topic right. yeah. that you t- Which is really what yeah. broadcasting historically has had to do on some level and, and to, right. to imagine that, that broad audience out there, which makes me wonder about one of the challenges that I always have in, in just explaining public media to U.S. students um, is you know, trying to break them out of this sense that the only possible measure of success is the number of viewers or listeners, right? The, the, those measures that are true for commercial advertisers because um, that's how audiences are monetized. And certainly, I'm sure that the, the public space is paying attention to that. But mm. how is an organization such as NPR, both you know, in a pre-digital era, measuring and evaluating its success. And then and I'm sure the audience for these podcasts are, are much, much smaller for exactly the reasons we've talked about. They're, they're targeting specific interests. You know, they're just never going to be, uh, they're not designed to be mass public media experiences. And so can you talk a little bit about sort of those tensions when the organization is you know, struggling to allocate limited resources? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, audiences do matter. But it's not sheerly the size of the audience. It's the, uh, and Morning Edition and All Things Considered tout their ratings mm-hmm. all the time yeah. because their they're ratings. <laughs> they're really high. I mean, they're really high, uh, which is a testament, again, when you see commercial media declining, to, to see public media audiences grow, it's something to talk about. But I think the nuance in that and what NPR and all of public media looks for is when you see these rankings that talk about trust, mm-hmm. 
So there are sheer numbers, but I think what matters more is that when you ask listeners about their trust in media, NPR always ranks high. And it has meant a lot historically. I think it means even more now at a time when there's a real struggle um, to maintain public trust of public institutions of all sorts Mm -hmm. and um, when there are a lot of efforts to to discredit the media and to see that even in a time when there are a lot of headlines about lack of trust in the media, that trust in public media um, has remained strong. And so that counts. Mm -hmm. Also, there is a public mission to reach audiences who are not being served. When you think about something like the Code Switch podcast or another podcast that had started before um, as an independent podcast, but that uh, I helped bring to NPR, Ready Wambolante, which is Spanish Spanish language podcast, which is magnificent. Mm-hmm. If you do not listen to it, I would highly recommend it. There's an imperative to try to reach people with different subject matter and and that one of the things that NPR looks at is the power of its megaphone Mm -hmm. and that you can very successfully build an audience around the TED Radio Hour um, and then Mm cross-promote to the Politics Podcast Mm -hmm. or build an audience around Invisibilia and cross-promote to Hidden Brain Mm -hmm. and Hidden Brain can cross-promote to Code Switch and you're introducing people to... um, subjects and voices and topics that they may not have gotten to on their own. And that part of the mission, I think, is really important. And so even if the audience is small relative to 13 million people who listen Mm -hmm. to Morning Edition, the opportunity for engagement around a level of discourse Mm -hmm. that is important. NPR would not simply drop standards to reach a larger Mm -hmm audience, that there's got to be a certain level of discourse. And when you see an audience growing around topics that topics that can be controversial, and you're able to maintain a level of discourse that is part of the mission, mm-hmm. then every listener counts, right? And so if you have a podcast that's um, reaching 350,000 or 500,000 downloads, a month that is as successful mm-hmm. for what you're trying to do with that product mm-hmm. as 13 million listeners to morning edition the business side of this um is also not unimportant right mm-hmm. that that one of the things that sponsors want is that concentrated audience mm-hmm. and podcasts offer the opportunity to reach a concentrated set of people within a certain demographic um Audiences matter for that mid role in the same way that they do for commercial commercial entities, mm-hmm. but the engagement and NPR's ability to hold an audience then makes that sponsored commitment stronger. Right. And so it, it's a win on the business front. It's a win on the audience front. I think if something were winning totally on the business end and not delivering on the audience goals end then the product probably wouldn't survive, and vice versa. Yeah. 
It's interesting to think about. You brought up the the 50th anniversary, you know, and obviously commercial media in the U.S. have existed for much longer. And so, you know, in contrast to a, a history of, of public media coming into the states and trying to know, carve out this place within a commercial sphere that was serving some audiences quite well, but many audiences not well. Um, you know, so there was a certain landscape. Whereas what's interesting about the the podcast landscape and, and what some of these new digital technologies provide is, is, is that the public media has really been at the forefront. Yeah. And so there's, there's so much attention right now to podcasts as a potential commercial outlet. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about how you think that, you know, sort of what do you think the podcast landscape looks like five years from now? <laughs> um, there's probably a bubble coming right mm-hmm. there i mean there already are more podcasts than people can sure listen. could you say we're at maybe peak podcast right now <laughs> i think we're probably at peak podcast here in october of 2017 <laughs> uh, there are certainly more than there are new ones coming out all the time and i i don't have time to listen to them and i listen to a lot of podcasts and so i mean i think we're i think it's going to start to thin and there's a range of podcasts right everything from in your garage, like Mark Marin, to a highly produced, heavily reported podcast, or like Invisibilia, us sitting in, <laughs> or, in, or, in or, North Quad Studios, <laughs> yeah. aka Amanda's office, yeah. recording a little show here. That's right, <laughs> with really good acoustics, I might say. Yeah. Um, um, so there's this range, and I think that every point on the range will remain represented. I, I think that there's a there's an audience and everybody likes that more sort of ragged quality to um, a purely conversational mm-hmm. podcast. And so there's that that conversational slash comedy end of things. And then there's the heavily reported things. And then there's the informational conversational space, which I think you guys sit in, that's both, yeah. that's both reported and serious, but not sending a reporter out sure. with a kit yeah. and highly produced mm-hmm. sound levels and... And I think all those, that range will remain, but it's going to have to necessarily thin out. And I think one of the reasons that NPR pretty quickly dominated the top of the space is because the disruption actually leaned toward what it already did well, which does not happen. (laughs) You know, it doesn't happen. It was sort of, it was a gift, right? That people all of a sudden wanted to listen to things, um, because it's really hard to read a 10,000 word story on your phone. And so, but it's not hard to listen. And um, the ability to produce beautiful audio and to actually free yourself up to do things that you can't do in your broadcast format mm-hmm. was a gift waiting to fall into the laps of people who produce public media. Mm-hmm. The other thing I, I think is going to happen in the commercial market. Um, um, Alex Bloomberg, who started Gimlet Media, he started Planet Money and then mm-hmm. left to, to start the commercial venture, Gimlet Media. Yeah. You know, one of the things that he and others talk about is everybody wants to do a podcast. There's There aren't enough editors <laughs> to go around, <laughs> right? right? Well, you sort of, you look for these surprise shortages in mm-hmm. a field, that there right. are a lot of people who can have great conversations. But to produce sustained seasons of a podcast with rich sound, 
with multi-layered reporting and voices and storytelling, you need editors. Um, And there are only so many editors because most of the editors able to do this are in public media and already have jobs. And so, <laughs> and, and so there's, you know, the poaching environment right now is quite rich. Wow. <laughs> and good time to be an audio editor. It's a good, you heard it here. It is a good time to be an audio editor. Um, but I, I think that the other thing I think that we're, you know, at peak podcast and we're about to see the other side of the bubble is that people don't really know yet what these business models are going to yield. It is, it's a nice added source of revenue for not just NPR, but places like the New York Times or other places who can see this as, a, as an additional stream of revenue. But I don't know that anybody has necessarily figured out how this is a long-term business model mm-hmm. and what the commercial benefit of those that mid-roll sponsorship mm-hmm. is long-term. The sponsors who are paying for it now are betting on growing audience. But at some point, it's going to have to deliver at a sustained rate for the money to stay there. In five years, I have no idea what it's going to look like, but I bet it will look entirely different than it looks now. And what do you think it will be about a podcast that will make it kind of... Because if we are at peak podcasts, that will mean that some things will fade and some things will kind of stand out. What do you think it will be about a particular show that will help it to stand out above the rest? That's an interesting thing. I've been thinking about this in media in general and where we're going with so much a la carte media that... um, I think we're also socially at a moment where people are starting to see the limits of having a very specialized mm-hmm. personal experience and what we miss as a society when we don't have broad communal moments. Mm-hmm. Sort of beyond the pure demographic and business point, I wonder whether this generation of you know, age of adoption, podcast listeners... They know a group of friends who listen to Invisibilia with them religiously. But what does that mean when they step out into the wider world? I think people are trying to figure out what a news podcast looks like. So these topical Mm -hmm. podcasts are largely about not about escaping the news, right? (laughs) That's that's what they have in common. Um, But there are things that that people need to be generally informed mm-hmm. by. The NPR Politics podcast is a good example. Yes. Of that. And deeper reporting, I'm listening to season three of Embedded right now. That's exactly right. And so those podcasts, but even Embedded, it's off the news. So deep explorations of topics off the news. Mm-hmm. And the Politics podcast um, and others are trying to figure out is there a way to create an experience that will bring a large number of people together? around the things that you need to know on any given day. And I, don't, I think that question's largely unanswered. And there are small audiences for it, and we need to figure it out. And then the other thing I think that's interesting that's happening is this notion that people may want a more communal experience. So some of these podcasts have now been spun off back into radio programs. The Hidden Brain podcast just launched as a radio program on the weekends because there's this whole group of 
weekend programming on public media that has been driven historically by things like car talk and wait, wait, don't tell me. And there's a generation of people asking for new weekend Mm -hmm. programming. Um, And these same millennials who all these studies show that they're now buying SUVs just like their parents <laughs> bought. Yeah, and they're bigger. buying bigger houses. Those millennials, like those. they're just like... <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, that they actually, you know, as they too are in cars driving children right. to sports events on the weekend, mm-hmm. would like the things same. to listen to um, in addition to the podcast that they already listen to. And so I think that will be an interesting development, too. I think the things that are created for radio in the future won't sound like the things, mm-hmm. the drive time shows that have historically been created. And I think this level of intimacy and voice that people have come to gravitate toward is probably going to stick around. Do you think it's been a minute with uh, Sam, Sam Sanders? Sam Sanders yeah. is another one. So Sam Sanders, um, who I also hope will come here, Sam Sanders was a reporter who then went to the NPR Politics podcast and then spun off this more conversational podcast. It's been a minute with Sam Sanders. Driven by his voice. Driven by his voice. And there is sort of a community of people. And his voice, not meaning the sound of his voice, (laughs) but even though the sound of Sam's voice is really great, but the style and the personality he brings. And people were gravitating towards Sam. And so... They are created this vehicle um, for Sam, and that's now becoming a radio program, too. So I think public media is being smart about the need to experiment on all of Mm -hmm. these platforms, um, and that rather than being scared Mm -hmm. by the disruption, you know, to understand that this particular point in disruption benefits them. And that they have to lean into it. Now it's it's really fascinating to think about the specificity of of public media and the places that it draws revenue from and and its mission and the way in which it is positioned very differently in these moments that are so scary to commercial enterprises that know how they've made money and aren't sure where it's going to come from in the future. And so like the tendency is to lock down and um, you know, to not experiment. Uh, the the nature of, of public media to aggressively try something new with podcasts, which, you know, there's no subscription. Uh, you're just adding value. And at the end of the day, does it matter whether listeners like you are, are donating more because they really like the podcast or because they like Morning Edition? It's not that sort of sense yeah. of cannibalization. Uh, Although, so there's a counter-argument sure, to this. Yeah, no, there is a counter-argument yeah. to this, right? Because um, podcasts are good for NPR. It's unclear whether they're good for the member station mm-hmm. economy, mm-hmm. right? Because as a listener, you do not give money to NPR. You give money to your local member station, mm-hmm. and your member station pays fees to NPR to create programs to fill the air. Right. To license the content. From yes. NPR. And so the public media economy for radio is built off of a, contra- of a, of a content distribution exchange mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. To, to local radio broadcasters. And so the question is, going back to It's Been a Minute with Sam Sanders, so Sam Sanders creates an audience that is 
fiercely loyal to Sam, would feel very inspired to give $50 after hearing Sam talk about something really smart. And their trained user behavior is to be able to go to their phone, click something, Mm -hmm. and on an impulse, make a donation. Right? Like like you do in storm relief. Mm -hmm. The public media system's not set up that way. And they're hearing Sam Sanders from NPR, but the economy is built that they need to then have that that feeling that they're feeling in their <laughs> podcast for them some somebody to remind them that well the way you express that love is to donate to Michigan Radio right. and that is not it's not a logical it, it's it's like in the in the first days of digital the more clicks you had to have somebody do to have them right. convert to the thing that you wanted them to get to the less likely they were mm-hmm. to get to it and so I think this part of the economy, the business of podcasts, hasn't been worked out. And this is probably why It's Been a Minute is now being offered as a radio program. Because as a radio program, it can be placed on local air. And these people who right. love the this podcast product, you can demonstrate that this exists somewhere else and then hopefully create that link that would spur giving, which contributes to NPR's bottom the, right. the the bulk of NPR's business model which is those um, licensing fees from member stations do you think that that is something you know, is there enough goodwill between NPR and the member stations that a greater good can be identified in terms of maybe letting go of some of those past structures in, instead of you know that's a big burden if trying to make sure your listeners not only are listening, are willing to donate, but also educating them about the complex organization structure, yes. you know, like yes. that, that seems the hardest way to, you know, yes. get to, I think, the, the goal that perhaps everybody you know, really wants at the end of the day. Yeah, I think that there are conversations that are ongoing and that there are, there are ways that this whole new ecosystem, I, I mean, hate, like, I try to not say synergy or ecosystem <laughs> in my conversation, so right. ding me for that one. But but the um, that this whole system, there's probably a way to figure it out where you serve the audience needs, which mm-hmm. you you have you have to do. You right. can't ignore the preferences and behavior um, where you serve the audience needs and also figure out some new financial structures. Mm-hmm. And I think those conversations are much less tense than they were five Mm. years ago uh, when I first got to NPR. I mean, it was the content opportunity was recognized and the business opportunity was very fraught. Mm -hmm. And I think it's less fraught now, um, but still not figured out. Mm -hmm. And certainly local stations want to develop podcasts, Mm -hmm. too. And so Mm. it's sort of figuring out Who's the best? I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, you're, the challenge is what's the best source to create the best product for the audience? Mm-hmm. And if for, let's say, a, a podcast that's focused on the environment, maybe the best place to do that is a station somewhere in uh, a state with heavy fracking or something, or or in the Pacific Northwest, or there's a way to figure out the best way to serve the audience. And I think to the extent that new products are developed to respond first to an audience need, Mm -hmm. 
they have the best chance of sure. surviving. And, um, and because I do think that the audience need is baked into the core of what drives public media, and that's something that makes it different than mm-hmm. commercial media, that I think it'll get figured out. But it's not figured out yet. Now, to ask a question that's a little bit different from what we've asked, what is your biggest regret from your time at NPR, and what do you think public radio can learn from that regret? Hmm. Overall, it's not sort of a personal regret as a, I wish we had gotten farther on the learning curve on this, mm-hmm. um, is that some functions that commercial media does well are lacking in public media. Marketing is okay. is one. <laughs> that that marketing has not traditionally been a place where you you in public me- that public media invested a lot of resource in. But I do think in these areas where you're trying to build new audience, mm-hmm. especially where diversity um, diversity is important, even if you create something, even if your name is NPR, you have to spend money right. to market it. You have to go out and find the audience and introduce the product to them. Where the system is built beautifully to craft new content, it does not have the muscle it needs, I think, to to go out and create a sense of welcome for those audiences who by the very nature of what they're interested in and what NPR does well, there should be a lock there. I, I was always frustrated, you know, when I would travel around I grew up in Ohio in uh, an all-black neighborhood. I did not grow up listening to NPR, just didn't know what it was. And when I started listening to it, I couldn't believe I never listened to NPR because everything my family talked about, everything that was important to us, we were regular newspaper readers, but nobody had ever made the connection that this was a product for, quote, us, Mm -hmm. that this was something we should be regularly listening to. And so I carried that with me. Um, always in my work in strategy at NPR. And there's only so much you can do without a whole division whose job it is to go out and find that new audience. I mean, when I think of commercial television, I look at what ABC has done in recent years to really diversify their product offerings. Offering fresh off the boat, blackish, speechless, even, playing to a very different... Yes, it's, I mean, they've been extraordinarily conscious about it, and they've been extremely deliberate in saying, we've created this for you, please come to us. And I think that there's something to learn in that model. Um... Well, it makes sense in terms of, of why there'd be hesitation in public media to devote dollars to to marketing. But, you know, if, Which if sounds, you think... It sounds right, so, like, crass right. and businessy. If you think of it instead about as outreach, then, yes. you know, perhaps the, the paradigm shifts enough. If we look at any media industry, we see that, you yeah. know, the content creation... Is, is a huge part of budgets, but often matched in marketing, and especially in an environment of peak everything. Yeah. Like the idea yeah. that not only sort of these these bigger questions about audiences and sort of a sense of certain types of media and who they're for, but even just any kind of getting the message out uh, around particular niche products is really tough. It's Pushing really, through the noise. Yeah. You have to put, and there's so much noise, right? And people's habits are 
very well developed. And so if you're trying to crack through a whole new market that you've just been unable for decades to really make significant inroads uh, with, I feel this way about the Spanish language content. I feel this way about things like Sam Sanders or Code Switch. And um, Sam Sanders happens to be black. Sam Sanders' show isn't a black show, right? So so you're just trying to push him out to a group of people who should encounter him. Um, and in encountering him, you can provide an entry into all this other content that they would probably love. It's less of a regret than a, boy, I hope they figure this out, <laughs> um, because it needs to be figured out. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And now it's time for the last segment of each and every show, What We're Watching This Week. Amanda, what are you watching? I just finally got through FX's Snowfall, which was a series that aired over the summer. And actually, I'm surprised that there wasn't more discussion of it. It was uh, The storytelling was really well done, and there really were some great performances. And I, I'm, I believe it's coming back for the second season, and I, I'm hopeful to see what happens next. Yeah, it kind of arrived with a whimper. Well, you know, in this day and age, it's, I think, really tough to uh, necessarily get the, the critics focused. I don't remember what else was debuting around it. I think I automatically... Ah, there you go. I automatically recorded it because uh, FX rarely displeases me. And, <laughs> and yet again, uh, they, they served up a, a really compelling story. Um, much of the... John Singleton was behind a lot of the uh, creative vision for this show. And it, it just, it looked great. And, uh, you know, certainly was a story that isn't being told on television, so uh, I recommend taking a look. What are you watching, Alex? So I am going to do something a little bit different yet again and talk about the baseball postseason because my New York Yankees have, as we're recording this, made the American League Championship Series, and I am so proud of this little team. They have done gone beyond my wildest dreams for this season. Aaron Judge is a monster, and I'm so happy that this team has gone as far as they have, and quite frankly, it's kind of eaten into my scripted TV time. And that's it for this week's edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to learn more about Media Business Matters, go to amandalots.com and click on the podcast link at the top of the page. If you want new episodes of the show delivered as soon as they're available, including the rest of our public media series, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and on the Google Play Store. Amanda, where can our fine listeners find you on Twitter? At Dr. TV Lots. That's D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. You can find Lynette Clementson at L. Clementson. That's L-C-L-E-M-T-S-O-N. And you can find me at Alex Entner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back next week.